Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 17 of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear. Chapter 17. A Surprise and a Disappointment. The following day brought Cullen a surprise as great and in a way more disconcerting than had been given him by Genghis Khan when he descended upon him out of an oak tree the evening before. Cleona arrived at the bungalow, and she was a Cleona indignant and filled with the just wrath of a woman deceived. She was so angry that she had forgotten all dread of the place and marched into the dining-room unannounced like a small avenging angel. Cullen was alone. Mrs. Bollinger had made good her resolve and renounced his service in a wonderfully spelled note, which a small boy thrust under the front door that morning. So Cullen had cooked his own breakfast and luncheon. He was a good cook, within the limits of his cuisine, as this ran chiefly to wild game of which he had none—fried ham, eggs, flapjacks, and coffee. There promised to be a certain monotony of diet unless he could persuade some other Mrs. Bollinger to dare the goblins of the bungalow. He was somewhat sadly reflecting upon this fact when Cleona surprised him. Unexpectedly long though his residence here had been, and though the continuance of its secrecy had seemed a daily increasing miracle, yet the worst he had anticipated was discovery by his brother-in-law, who might have got wind of his presence there through the gossip of some carpenterian in business circles. He would be unlikely to carry word of it to his wife, but would investigate on his own account. For Cleona herself to descend upon him was lightning from a clear sky, and he had never felt more astonished and embarrassed in his life. He choked on his coffee, but this was fortunate. By the time he was able to speak he had thought of something to say. "'Cleona, my dear,' he beamed, coming around the table with outstretched arm, "'it's a fine thing to see you looking so well and all.' But she ran away from him, barricading herself behind a chair. She regarded her brother scornfully. "'You lied to me!' She was fairly ablaze with the white-hot anger that occasionally flared up in both the O'Hara's. "'You lied, and you never went away at all!' Because he was dear to her, the discovery of his incomprehensible deception had hurt her intolerably. As she had written him, her health and strength had practically returned, and she had begun to go about much as usual. While in the city shopping, she had chanced to meet a lady whose husband owned an extensive property adjoining the road's former possessions at Carpentier. Cleona could not understand the woman's meaning when she said, "'Your brother looks so well, Mrs. Rhodes. I often see him, though only at a distance.' Then it had all come out. Cleona said nothing to her husband. This was between her and Cullen, and as soon as Rhodes left her to return to his office she took the first train to Carpentier. Why, no, confessed Cullen, halting to run his fingers through his hair and reflect. Sure I didn't go away. Did you think I would really travel off to the far end of the earth and leave you so sick and all? I— The matter of the lie Cullen excused on the ground that, if he had told the truth, 
Rhodes would have insisted on coming with him, or at least occasionally sharing his nightly watch. Cleona shuddered at the thought. She heard the story of his last night's adventure, somewhat toned down and denatured, for Cullen had no notion of increasing her concern for him. He told her of his suspicion that Reed's strange stock-farm was responsible for her own experience, and in that case, of course, there was no danger in his remaining at the bungalow. Reed would now take the utmost care that none of his creatures, whatever they might be, should again escape. But even to her O'Hara could not bring himself to tell of Reed's daughter. Deranged or sane, to him she was sacred, a vision bestowed upon him by the friendly gods, and he would not speak of her. "'So I am going there again this day,' he concluded. "'And when I come away I may have news to phone you or not. But at least, if such a creature is there as your ears informed you of, and your eyes saw the white claw of him, he will not be hard to pick out. So let me live here a while longer, Cleona, and do go back to Tony. Then in a few days I will join you, and perhaps I'll visit St. Augustine with yourselves.' To this she finally agreed, stipulating, however, that he should telephone her daily so that she might know he was safe. "'Night and morning I'll phone you,' Cullen promised. "'And now will you sit at my table, Mrs. Rhodes, and enjoy the elegant menu provided by my fine Irish chef? There's little variety, but plenty of quantity, which, you know, is the main thing as shown in my own person.' After all, except her husband, there was no one in the world so nice as Cullen. Her wounded affection healed by the knowledge that his deception had been carried out for the purpose of avenging her own wrongs. The two had a very merry meal together, and later Cullen rode with her to the train. Before paying his call, O'Hara determined to obtain some outside information regarding his new acquaintance, Chester Reed. For this purpose there seemed no one more convenient than the station agent, for Undine, excelling therein most such small suburban points, boasted a real live agent. O'Hara found him to be a pleasant young fellow, ready to handle passengers with admirable impartiality. Yes, certainly he knew Mr. Reed. Reed had bought the old Gerard place a year ago last April. Beautiful old estate, dated clean back to revolutionary days, and been in the Gerard family ever since, till, well, Mr. Charles Sutfen Gerard was the last of them. Too bad he had to come such a cropper. Five years ago it was. Hanged himself in the gate lodge. His creditors have been trying ever since to rent or sell the place at a decent profit, but nobody seemed to want it till this man Reed came along. Makes a place mighty unpopular to have a memory like that hanging over it. Say, if you'd hear some of the stories about that gate lodge. What? Oh, well, Reed had taken the place anyway, and didn't seem to care a tinker's cuss for all the dead Gerards that ever walked. Not the sort that cared to have living outsiders about, though. Yes, he believed Reed did handle some breeds of stock. His animals were brought there on the hoof, or in crates and boxes, and he, for his part, had never seen that any of them were unusual. Just sheep and calves, chickens and rabbits. Nothing even very fancy, so far as he had noticed. Here a man who was lounging against a packing-case put in his word. "'You know, that guy Reed is funny. When he first come here he give out that he was going in for what he called scientific stock-raising. There's two or three real stock-farms hereabout, and some fellows went and offered him some nice prize stock. 
but he says no. He don't want nothing like that. What he was going to begin on must be imported. So he puts up a lot of wire fencing, the strongest I ever seen, and then, outside of that, he shuts in the Girard grounds with high board fences all along Llewellyn Creek and all the other sides away from the pike. Then he nails up no trespass signs every five feet, like he was going to start a dynamite factory. Well, broke in the agent, he has a right to keep people off his grounds, hasn't he? I ain't saying he ain't. I'm only telling you what a funny guy he is. You only got to look at the poor old house to see that. What did he want to stick that big round cupule thing right in the middle of the roof for, huh? What's a cupule got to do with stock raising? Then he imports this here fancy stock, and, oh, say, I got a good look at a lot of it when it come in. By Jiminy, they was the commonest, orneriest bunch of cattle that anybody ever turned out in the road to get rid of. They was—' "'There was some fine Belgian hares in the last shipment,' cut in the agent. "'Them brown rabbits, you mean? I don't know nothing about them, but say I do know cattle. I was raised on a real stock farm. Them calves and sheep of his couldn't sneak up on a blue ribbon that was give out by a blind judge at midnight. And the poultry—oh, my!' Here his feelings overcame him. He fairly doubled up with mirth. All this was very puzzling to O'Hara. Had not Reed distinctly stated that his farm was not for the purpose of breeding ordinary domestic animals? "'And what do you think of his taste in monkeys?' he suggested tentatively. Both his informants seemed to take this query as delightfully facetious. The agent had appeared inclined to defend Reed, but he too laughed, saying, that bleached-out man of his is the limit, isn't he? I always said he was more like a white rat than a human being. But I guess an albino monkey does come nearer the mark." Cullen stared. Could it be possible that Genghis Khan was unknown in the neighborhood? "'You don't take my meaning,' he said frankly. I'm not referring to Marco, but to the real monkey, the one he calls Genghis Khan." The agent shook his head. Both men looked blank. Didn't know he had one, mister. Must be some pet that came in one of the small boxes. Well, I've got my bills of lading to check over. If you want to go out to Reed's place, Jimmy here will show you the way. Won't you, Jimmy? That is, unless you've been there before." I know the way, nodded O'Hara, and thanks for the time you've given me. As he started up the road, the lounger called after him. Say, mister, don't be surprised at nothing you hear there. That Miss Reed, his girl that lives there with him, is loony. I never seen her, but I've heard she takes on something awful every once in a while. And say, don't buy none of his imitation fancies, neither. I can put you next to some real good—" But with an impatient wave of the arm, O'Hara strode out of hearing. Without reason, he resented intensely the man's reference to the girl, and to follow it up with advice about livestock. Had the fool no sense of what was fitting? Though he resolutely declined to face the fact, O'Hara was taking an astonishing amount of interest in this mad girl, to whom he had never spoken, whom he had seen for a scant three minutes. He might refer to her as a blessed and miraculous memory all he pleased, but it was not so much memory as a faint hope of seeing her again that made this present visit the most exciting he had ever planned paying in his life. The day had begun fine and sunny but a high wind had arisen. Now, at four in the afternoon, 
masses of dark cloud were surging across the sky, threatening rain before nightfall. Dust and dry brown leaves swirled round and past him, and he had to cling to his hat lest it follow the leaves. The branches of the trees whipped and writhed in a wind that was stripping away the last of their October splendors. Cullen walked slowly, for he wished to think over the things he had just learned. Sheep, calves, poultry, and hares. Now, which of those four could groan like an earthquake? Faith, it sounds like a riddle. Something did moan last night, and t'was no cage dragged over a floor either. It frightened the poor little dusky lady upstairs. But if the people about here know nothing of Genghis Khan, why may it not be that Reed has other secrets, for museums, says he, and menageries? Now what sort of beast would those be? I never did hear of a man that could breed the larger carnivora with any success at all in captivity, or not in these latitudes. Freaks, then. Maybe. Now what is the queer science of reeds? Does he cut the poor brutes up alive and hang the fore part of one on the hind part of another?" O'Hara had been reading The Island of Dr. Moreau, and its vivisectionary horrors had stirred his imagination. "'If there's anything like that going on here,' he thought, "'tis high time it was put a stop to.' "'I did not like that man Reed at first, and now, after thinking him over, I do not at all. He's too smooth and too polite and behind it he hides a nasty temper. And his glasses are too big and ridiculous. I'd like to see the lad with them off, and his beard off too. A man might as well wear a mask as all that adornment. I may have seen him before, and I may not, but if I could see him shaved it would help me decide." Here he postponed further reflection, for he had come up to the wrought-iron gates. He sought the button of the electric bell and pressed it. It rang in the gate-lodge as before, but since it seemed unlikely that the entire time of Reed's one servant was spent in that sepulchral refuge, Cullen assumed that the button had two connections, one of them at the house. It was in that lodge, the agent had said, that the last owner had hanged himself. Recalling his experience of last night, a doubt flashed through Cullen's mind like a flying spark. It was gone in an instant. He had his superstitious side but seldom allowed it to get the better of him. That pale oval in the gate-lodge doorway had been Marco's face. Ghosts do not push doors open, nor close them too, and anyway it would be a very inefficient haunt that showed itself only to disappear so instantly. Cullen smiled at the thought, and he looked beyond the lodge. Within the ground seemed more desolate, though less mysterious than on the previous night. Through the trees, which had shed so many of their leaves that afternoon, he caught glimpses of grey granite walls, and above them the roofs of the old, many-gabled house, and yet above them, like a misplaced reminiscence of the Orient, a strange, round, domed affair. The dome form is one of the glories of architecture, but this one was not beautiful at all. It somehow suggested that an incredibly large, white fungus had sprouted there in the night and not yet discovered and removed by the outraged dweller's owner. Somewhere, some time, where and when, thought Colin, had he once before received that impression of a dome? A fugitive memory that he could not place, and now Marco came rustling down through the leaves on the unswept drive. He met O'Hara with that same frightened stealthy look which seemed his habitual expression, 
and opened the gate with the air of a conspirator. "'What ails you, man?' demanded O'Hara as he entered. "'You're shivering like a wet poodle-dog. Is it the ague you have?' The man shook his head and replied in his mumbled, toothless voice. "'Last night. You made great noise last night. Too much noise. Silence! Silence!' Cullen stared. He had supposed the man normal save in appearance, but it appeared he was only half-witted. "'All right, my lad,' he said soothingly. "'Since noise troubles you so, I'll try and make less of it today. Will I find Mr. Reed at the house?' Again Marco shook his head, and putting a hand in the pocket of his worn corduroys, pulled out a crumpled envelope. "'Here,' he mumbled, extending it to O'Hara. There are words on the white paper inside. A note, eh? Now what? Cullen tore open the envelope. As the albino had phrased it, there were indeed words on the white paper inside, and words, moreover, which he read with considerable disappointment. The letter ran, My dear Mr. O'Hara, I am writing this in case you should honor me with a visit this afternoon, as you spoke of doing. It is with great regret that I am obliged to postpone the pleasure of showing you about my little place, but imperative business calls me away. I cannot set the exact time of my return, but probably it will be in the course of a few days. I will then drop you a line, and sincerely hope that your visit may be repeated. Again, regretting this involuntary rudeness to an invited guest, believe me, most sincerely yours, Chester T. Reed. Cullen glanced from Reed's note to find the albino's eyes fixed on his face, but as usual not with the least appearance of seeing him. One could hardly believe that those black, point-like pupils were designed to look outward. "'So your master has left you in charge here?' queried Cullen thoughtfully. "'I am here, yes.' "'But, I mean, is it alone you are? No one to look after, Miss Reed?' Marco frowned and pointed first to the note, then to the gate. The master said, after reading, go. Faith, you've a polite way of dismissing his guests, friend Marco. Cullen hesitated. Could it be possible that Reed had actually gone away and left his pitifully lovely daughter in the charge of this red-eyed and possibly degenerate creature? If so, what had been none of his business became his business or that of any other decent man there must be some law of the state to cover such a situation. He decided to consult his brother-in-law. That clever lawyer could surely advise him. In the meantime, Marco, he said, look me in the eye and heed well what I say. Should any harm come to Miss Reed in her father's absence, be sure I'll know of it, and be sure that it's myself you have to deal with for it. Do you understand? I could tear you to bits, little man, and well you know it. The master said, after reading, go. Oh, I'll go. But do you think of my words and heed them, and tell your master that the O'Hara was here. Good day to you, Marco. The gates clicked shut behind him. Cullen paused outside to light a cigar, with difficulty shielding the match from the gale. When he glanced back through the iron scrolls, Marco had disappeared. "'Tis ashamed of myself I am," mused Cullen, "'threatening violence to a weak white worm like him. But that's the best I could think of to do. I do not know what is wrong with that place, nor with the master of it, but that something is wrong I am sure as sure can be. 
and I could hardly invade the man's premises by force to look into the matter. Or could I? He stared thoughtfully through the beautiful gates that Sutphen Gerard himself had imported from Italy. As he looked, the first few drops of driven rain beat stingingly upon Cullen's face, and the wind ripped through the trees like the breath of a giant shouting, violent, impetuous, intolerant of all foul vapours and secret vileness. End of chapter 17《Chapter 18 of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear, Chapter 18 A Voice. But Cullen did not invade Reed's place that afternoon. For one thing, he wanted Rhodes' opinion before acting. He knew himself for an impetuous man, more used to the rough, forthright ways of the open than the ruled order of civilization. He feared committing some blunder, overriding the law in some way that might injure the girl rather than help her. Yes, he must talk to Rhodes. He returned to his lonely bungalow in a mood so meditative that he was scarcely aware of the wild tempest that raved and tore at his drenched figure as he ascended the hill-road from Carpentier. Night had fallen, a roaring blackness, and there had been no one to light up against his coming. He stumbled in, switching on the lights through the house as he went. They were comfortable, cheery rooms that sprang into view, still wearing some few of the home-like touches given them by Cleona, but for some reason the sight of them only emphasized the trouble of his mind. Still pondering gloomily, Cullen exchanged his dripping clothes for dry ones, then he called Green Gables on the telephone. His sister answered, and having informed her of the negative result of his visit to Undine, he asked for Tony. But Tony, it seemed, was in town, having been detained on business. He would be home later in the evening. "'I'll call him later, then,' said Cullen, and bade his sister good-bye. He went through the dining-room, and from a bracket of the sideboard there, a little porcelain image smiled benignly at his passing form. The broken shield still lay beside it. He had kept the godling for the sake of the dream it would always bring to mind, but that dream was far from his thoughts tonight. He passed Quetzalcoatl's small idolon without a glance, and sought the kitchen, where he began preparing his supper. The cold rain had given him an appetite that even vague worry could not spoil. Having made a wonderfully good meal, he pushed the dishes to one side of the kitchen-table and lighted his pipe with a deep sigh of physical contentment. But the satisfaction of his appetite had by no means quieted his mind. Back and forth fled his thoughts, spinning an invisible, intangible web between the bungalow at Carpentier and the house at Undine, till it seemed as if the cords of it had entangled his very body and were dragging him forth into the storm again. What was the real connection between the huge, bloody thing that left its trail on this hill and that grating, vibratory roar he had heard last evening as he sat in Reed's entrance hall? Was there a connection? And why did Reed keep a mad girl in the very surroundings best calculated to increase her dementia? And why would he, Cullen O'Hara, care so very intensely what Reed did for his daughter or left undone? Could insanity rouse love? No. 
common sense told him that the barrier of madness was higher than he could cross. Then it must be only pity that he felt for this poor daughter of Chester Reed. Pity, it seemed, was a force of fearful power. What was she doing now? What fate hung over her? Or was this feeling of indefinite dread no more than a film of his too active fancy? Now and again, while Cullen sat smoking and frowning through the smoke, the whole bungalow would shake, quivering as if in the grasp of some fierce monster. It was just that, and the monster was the living, raving wind. It dashed rain against the windows with savage roars, and shouted among the branches, daring the man within to match his strength to its violence. Cullen wished that Rhodes had been in. He wanted authority authority to remove the girl definitely and forever from the care of a father not fit to have charge of her. Did he take her by force and prematurely, it might weaken the case. How could he tell? Rhodes was the law-wise lad. The wind's voice no longer defied him. It was calling, pleading with him in great shouts and gasps of terror. It was a reckless, impetuous messenger, tearing at his windows and his heart in gusty throbs of wordless passion. There he sat, stolid, content in his animal comfort, and the wind knew that which should drag him through storm, fire, or hell's self, could it but impart its dread information. Cullen laid down his pipe and rose with a troubled frown. Wandering to the living-room, he touched a match to the pile of kindling and logs in the fireplace. For a while the snapping, friendly flames were a solace to his rising discontent, but soon the feeling of unrest returned like a flowing tide. The wind, the wind! Its invisible hand was shaking at the latch. Down it plunged through the chimney and spat contemptuous smoke and ashes at his stubborn inertia. It howled scorn at him for an irresolute, doubting fool and wailed sorrowfully about the house in a long prophecy of bitterness and lifelong regret. Till at last he could bear no more. "'Colin O'Hara,' said he, "'you're a fool. But if go you must, then go and have done with it.' Suddenly he tramped to his room and again changed, this time to heavy hunting clothes, with stout, waterproof boots, donned an ulster and pulled a steamer cap well down over his ears. Then he hesitated. Should he carry the blued steel weapon that still lay in his suitcase? Cullen had a certain scorn for any weapons other than the very efficient ones provided him by nature. To his mind there was something childish, even cowardly, about the look of a pistol in that great right hand of his. In the end he flung the thing into a drawer, hunted out and thrust in his overcoat pocket a small flashlight, extinguished the living-room fire and marched from the house, nose in air, in defiance of his own folly. The gale fairly snatched the breath from his nostrils, but Cullen lowered his head and lunged onward down the hill. He knew where he was going, and if he were thrusting himself in where no one wanted or needed him, well, let it be that way. It was then eight o'clock and he was just in time to catch the local that ran every two hours until midnight. At Undine he descended and was glad to observe that even the socially-minded agent had been driven to cover by the storm. 
Passing through the small group of stores and dwellings beyond the station, Cullen walked on out the pike, fairly leaning his weight against the blast, and too blinded by rain to get much good of the flaring and far-separated road-lights. Instinctively it was toward the gate that he directed his steps, but reaching it he found his purpose too indefinite for convenience. Should he ring the bell and Marco answer it, what reason could he offer to gain him admittance? If he were going in at all it was clear that the entry must be clandestine. Once more he eyed that spike-topped wall with speculative glance. Then he recalled that the station-lounger had spoken of board-fences enclosing part of the estate. A fence might be easier to scale and might just possibly be spikeless. Ten minutes later found Cullen standing on the further bank of Llewellyn Creek, a spot he had reached by following the pike across the bridge and turning in at a little footpath branching off beyond. It led a hundred yards or so along the bank and ceased at what his flashlight showed to be another bridge, a single, narrow arch of stone, crumbling and without handrail or parapet. On the other side there appeared to be a small building, rising flush with the stream's bank and standing out somewhat from a high wooden barrier. Crossing the bridge, Cullen found himself faced by a plain wooden door set in a windowless wall of granite. What interested him was that this door was not only unlocked but slightly open. He entered, and his light playing over walls and floor showed a large, bare, dusty place. Boxes and packing-cases were stacked on one another, and in a corner lay a few rusty bits of old machinery. Nothing alive here save rats. Perhaps it was the contents of one of those packing-cases that gave off so unpleasant an odor. There was the dusty, disused smell natural to such a place, and through it whiffs of this other and by no means agreeable exhalation. Cullen wrinkled his nose and sniffed. Failing to identify its source, he dismissed the matter and looked for an inner exit. Crossing the old wooden floor, broken in more than one place, he discovered a pair of double doors, like those of a carriage-house. These two were unbarred and slightly ajar. Someone had surely been careless. Cullen wondered if Genghis Khan were once more abroad, but thought not. No sensible monkey would choose a night like this for its rambles. Emerging from the storehouse, he found his feet on a narrow plank walk that skirted a length of twelve-foot-high wire fencing. It looked strong enough, though springy steel meshes might have withstood the attack of a mad elephant. Curiosity, subordinated before to his concern for the girl, welled up now, and, yielding to it, Cullen sent the light of his flash through the meshes. The darting ray disclosed an expanse of trampled mud and wet turf, and beyond that a small, semi-enclosed shed. He held his light steady upon it. The rain, which had for a few moments diminished, descended again in driven, slanting sheets, but he thought he had glimpsed a heap of something gray that stirred as his light found it. Then a plaintive, long-drawn, Bah! reached his ears. Cullen snapped off his light in disgust. He had disturbed the innocent rest of some harmless sheep. Following the plank walk, he squelched heavily along in what he felt must be the direction of the house. 
Now and again he allowed himself another brief glance beyond the wire fence, but most of the space seemed empty. One mournful cow, unprovided with even so flimsy a shelter as the sheepshed, mooed at him dolefully as he splashed by. "'This I am sure of,' thought Cullen indignantly. "'If that reed man treats all his creatures like this, he'll soon have no stock to play scientist with. Sure, they'll all die of pneumonia.' He had traversed a considerable distance, and still he saw nothing but on one hand that absurdly strong wire fence, and on the other shrubbery and a multitude of lashing, wind-tormented trees. "'I'll get nowhere at this rate, save the other end of the estate.' So, turning aside, he plunged into pathless shrubbery. It was bad going, and except for his flash, would have been worse. They were blackberry and currant bushes, run wild and malignant with thorns and prickles. Out of their clutches at last, he for the first time glimpsed a light other than his own, which latter he promptly extinguished. "'That'll be the house,' he said decisively, and hoped he was right. Plowing toward it, through a wet wilderness of weeds that had once been close-cropped lawn, he came among trees again and shortly found himself within a stone's throw of his goal. It was a double light for which he had been heading, and proved to emanate from two windows set close together in the second story. Presently, using his own light cautiously, he identified nearby the deep porch and port cochere of his last night's visit. And now, having achieved the goal for whose attainment he had laid himself open to a charge of felonious trespass, Cullen found himself somewhat at a loss. Standing there in the rain, it seemed to him that the strong inner force that had hitherto driven him, and which constituted his only real excuse for being there, now mockingly withdrew. He shivered and scowled morosely at the dark, inhospitable entrance. For the first time he knew what a prowling, prying fool he must seem to read, could that gentleman have guessed his presence. He glanced again toward the lighted windows above him. To his surprise he saw that the lower sash of one was raised. The drenched white curtains were flapping inward with a wind-driven rain. Then as he looked, a figure appeared there, backing slowly into view, and O'Hara gasped at the desired but unexpected apparition. There she stood, and though her back was toward him and the rain slanted between, he could make no mistake. He knew every curving line of those green-clad shoulders, that erect white neck and well-poised head. Had she been his closest comrade for years instead of the stranger common sense called her, he could have felt no keener sense of familiar recognition. Still keeping her face to the room, she stretched back one slim arm feeling for the window-ledge. A wet curtain lashed and wrapped itself about the arm. With a quick, frantic energy she strove to free it. Then another arm flashed into view, and at last Colin knew the meaning of the silent drama of whose actors he had yet seen but one. That darting arm was neither charming nor graceful. White, shaggy, rough as a length of pale thick vine, it clutched toward her throat with hand and fingers extravagantly long and terrible. Cullen knew that hand, for he had felt it on his own throat. With a great shout he sprang across the drive and was under the window. 
Throw yourself backward and jump! He commanded a difficult feat, and from where he now waited could see nothing of what was going on above him. How might she possibly elude that near and gripping hand? And why should she obey his own roaring command from the outer darkness? Three seconds passed, four, five. This was folly. He must break his way in somehow, before it was too late, and— Above him there leaned out a head and a pair of slim shoulders, while a low voice called, "'I am coming! You frightened it!' A pair of white, bare feet swung out over the window-ledge. Sitting so, the girl was instantly drenched. To emerge into the raging maw of the tempest, blinded by rain, and swing off into a vacancy which might or might not receive her tenderly, must have required a courage, or a recklessness of uncommon quality. Yet sitting so, without pause or hesitation, the girl pushed herself off and dropped. Cullen caught her in his arms and did not even stagger to the shock. It seemed to him that she had fallen lightly, as a leaf drifting earthward, or a bird with the air cupped in its wings. How had his strength increased that she lay in his arms so lightly? He closed them about her in a quick fierceness of protection. That brute, that hairy, clutching ape-thing, had dared clutch at her, at his dusk lady. "'Are you hurt?' he whispered. "'Is it hurt you are that you lie so still?' She answered in the same low, sweet tones that had addressed him from the window. "'No, my lord, but it was well that you came when you came, and well that you called to me. The demon above there would have killed me, I think, had you not frightened him with that trumpet of your voice. My lord, will you take me away now?' My lord scarcely knew what to do. To some queer deep part of his being it seemed quite natural that she should call him so quite reasonable and satisfactory that she should speak to him with the quiet confidence of one who appeals to an old friendship, old and sure. But his surface mind was less easy. Her father had spoken no more than truth. The girl was demented. "'Sure, and I'll take you away,' he declared. "'And isn't that the very reason I was waiting under your window? But first we'll go into the house and make all straight and proper.' the way none may say I've been stealing you, little lady." "'What? Return behind the walls of hate? But why?' "'It's a matter of decency, my dear. And besides, before I can take you away you must be dry and better clothed. You're shivering this minute.' "'Not for cold,' she began, but just then a light sprang up close to Cullen's head. Startled, he fumed and saw that he was close by a window of the entrance hall. Two forms flashed, running across his field of vision, and a moment later he heard the door within the deep porch flung open. Carrying the girl, he stalked around toward the steps, for he was no sneaking marauder, and felt neither shame nor further need of excuse for his presence. It had been too amply justified. Marco met him. Behind him a crouching, snarling, bestial form but of that latter Cullen had a very brief glimpse. Genghis Khan may have recognized the enemy who had chased him across five miles of rough going after breaking his right arm, now bandaged in splints at his side. Khan promptly retreated, sliding through the door and out of sight with the streaking speed of a giant white cockroach. 
but Marco held his ground. "'You! You!' he mumbled, pointing a shaking, furious finger. "'You come again! You touch her, my lady!' "'Better I than some others less respectful,' retorted O'Hara calmly. "'Is your master here?' "'Well, you know he is not. You fear him. Everyone fears him. You come when he is gone. Put her down. Let me take my lady.' Coming at him, the albino thrust his hand beneath the girl's shoulders as if to tear her away. At that she screamed for the first time, clutching at Cullen with small, convulsive fingers. Then Cullen struck Marco with the full weight of his fist, and with all his really terrible strength at the back of the blow. It was a needless, savage act, as he afterward condemned it. Marco was no possible match for him. In cold blood he would have brushed the albino aside without harming him. But the sight of that repulsive, red-eyed, pallid thing clawing at the girl, and the loathing and the terror in her voice, acted upon him like a draught of maddening liquor. He struck without thought or premeditation, as at some noxious insect, desiring only to crush it, obliterate it from the world it polluted by living. The blow caught Marco just under the point of the chin. His head flew back with an audible snap, his body jerked through the air and sliding full length across the porch, brought up at the inner threshold. It twitched spasmodically and lay quiet. Cullen stood and the girl clung to him, silent and quivering. Very softly he ascended the steps crossed the porch and gently disengaging her arms set his burden down within the doorway, her bare feet on the dry softness of a rug. Then he bent over Marco. He had hit him hard, too hard, and well he knew it. A thin, scarlet trickle was running from a corner of the flaccid mouth. He was not at all surprised when, lifting the albino shoulders, the head dropped back with the limpness of a broken stick held together by a few torn fibers. He felt for Marco's heart and examined his neck with inquiring fingers. Then he laid him back and rose. From the dead man he looked up to his mad, dusk lady. She was watching him with dark, wondering eyes. Her wet, green gown clung to limbs and body close as the green bark of a young tree, and the thick curls of her hair glistened black and shining. Like some sorrowful spirit of the storm-torn forest she stood there, and Cullen was ashamed before her. He, who had come to protect and guard her, had been betrayed by his temper and thereby involved them in heaven only knew what entanglements. "'My lord, why do you look so sad and stern? Have I given you offence?' "'You! Poor child! No, tis myself has offended! But how! Never mind!' Go to your room, little lady, and dress yourself, so that I may take you to a kinder place. At least Marco will trouble you no more in the night. He is hurt." Hurt? Is he not dead? She said it so simply, and with so childlike an inflection of disappointment, that the words took Cullen aback. "'Never mind that,' he retorted, almost sharply. "'Never mind that. Go dress yourself dry and warm, and put on a coat if you have one, against the rain." Frowning, she looked down at her one inadequate but becoming garment. 
I owe you gentle obedience, my lord, but I had vowed never to don robes of his giving. Must I then break my solemn vow? Indeed, and I fear you must. They'll not let us on the train otherwise. She meditated a moment longer, then, I will put me on a coat, since my lord desires it, and she started for the stair. Remembering Genghis Khan, O'Hara followed. She led him straight to the door at the end of the second-floor hall, where he had first seen her. It stood open, and as she entered he looked in over her shoulder. He saw a large bedroom, well, even luxuriously furnished. Clearly, careless though he might be of her welfare in other respects, Reed did not begrudge money spent on his daughter's immediate surroundings. Having made sure that the great ape was lurking nowhere in the room, and having closed the window above a rain-flooded Persian rug, O'Hara left his charge alone. She had said nothing in that while, only watched him with attentive eyes that followed every move with quiet interest, and he himself had little mind for conversation. But in the act of closing her door he turned back. "'Where's the phone?' said he. "'The—the phone?' "'The telephone. The box they talk through when a bell rings,' explained O'Hara patiently. She shook her head, with a look of perplexed distress that was to him unutterably pathetic. Dusk lady, indeed, ever wandering through the twilight of a darkened mind. "'I'll find it myself,' said he hastily, and closed the door. Down the stairs he went, heavy and slow, weighed down by a great sickness of the spirit. Despite Reed's assurance, despite the dictates of everyday reason, O'Hara had until the last hour been possessed of a secret, unvoiced hope that this girl, the glamour of whose elfin personality had drawn him as no woman ever drew him before, might prove to be a sane and normal being. That hope was dead now, dead as the unlucky albino slain in his master's doorway and for the sake of a mad girl he had committed a crime which in his own eyes debased him to the level of any common thug. Coming at last to the stairfoot, he turned and crossed toward the corpse of his poor, repulsive victim. And reaching the threshold of the hall, lo, it was empty. The body of Marco lay there no more, nor any trace of it. End of chapter 18 Chapter 19 of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear. Chapter 19. Cleona receives a guest. I'll pay the fare, for I've no tickets. The conductor nodded and counted out change. A nasty sort of night, Mr. O'Hara, he observed affably. Like every man on that short line, he knew half his passengers by sight, many by name, and there was little gossip going about at any of the smaller stations with which he was not acquainted. O'Hara had ridden with him only a few times, but the conductor was familiar with every extraneous fact concerning the Irishman's life at Carpentier. He remembered taking him to Undine earlier in the evening. Now O'Hara was going in town, where he was said never to go, and accompanied by a mysterious female. At that hour, eleven-thirty, there was not another passenger on the inbound train, so the conductor had plenty of leisure for curious thoughts. 
sitting on the dusty red plush cushions beside his silent dusk lady, O'Hara's mind dwelt grimly on the results of his little expedition. The disappearance of Marco's body troubled him, though he had made no effort to find it. Perhaps in the few moments that he was absent above stairs, Genghis Khan had carried it away. Or it might be that another witness than the girl had seen the slaying of Marco, someone who feared to show himself to this savage invader of Reed's domicile. One idea he clung to. Whatever he himself had done, Reed's daughter should not spend another night in that house of mysterious human and bestial inhabitants. She was silent and unquestioning, and he glad of her silence. When she talked his reason continually rebelled against the eccentricities of her speech. Silent, he felt renewed that intangible bond which seemed to exist between his nature and hers. Silent, he could almost forget that between them was also the dread spectre of insanity. My lord, are you still angered with me? At the sound of that low, slightly tremulous voice, O'Hara turned reluctantly to the girl beside him. Toward her, when she spoke, he felt only gentleness and pity, but he dreaded what she might say, feeling a sort of personal shame in her irrationality. "'I have no anger with you, little lady,' he answered kindly. "'Ill please, then. Is it because I have told you nothing of my story? One and another person I have told, but they had no... no understanding.' She broke off, hesitating and O'Hara groaned inwardly, thinking. And how should they understand? Poor lass, only God understands foolishness. But you are not as others. You will believe, for you are great and strong and noble, and moreover you are bound to me by the golden thread." Cullen started. Tell me nothing, he broke in hastily. Then, seeing that she shrank away with a little hurt motion, he added, We've no time just now for the length of your tale. Do you just wait, little lady, till we are safe at home with my sister. It's but a few minutes now till we get off the train." "'I will wait,' she answered with a submissive sigh, and indeed there was no more time for talk. They were then entering the train-shed at the city terminal, and shortly thereafter Cullen was hurrying his charge toward the gates and through them, thankful for the late hour and bad weather but there were few people about on the train floor, and in any case his fears proved needless. As they went she clung tightly to his arm, shrinking against him. Green gables at last, and as Cullen, standing in the shelter of the porte-cochere, paid off his driver, another car swung in and came to a halt just behind the taxi. This midnight motorist was Rhodes, very much belated, for him but aglow with the results of a successful business day. A few minutes later that satisfaction was obliterated in pure astonishment. Cullen, full of the trouble and excitement of the past few hours, had clean forgotten that by roads he was still supposed to be several thousand miles away, and it was a moment before he could see any reason for his brother-in-law's thunderstruck amazement. Between that and genuine delight at finding him there, Rhodes did not notice the girl standing so silent at O'Hara's side until the latter, protesting that explanation must come later, called attention to his mysterious companion. "'Little lady,' said he, drawing her forward, 
Here is a good friend of mine who will be a friend to you too, I am thinking. This is Mr. Anthony Rhodes, the husband of my sister. Tony, Miss Reed has come far and is needing rest. My wife will be delighted to welcome you, Miss Reed. Won't you come in? For all his cordial tone, Rhodes was secretly filled with growing amazement. O'Hara's abrupt and unheralded return had surprised him, but that he should drop out of nowhere at 12.45 a.m., accompanied by a mysterious and lovely female, who appeared to be dumb, for she had acknowledged neither the introduction nor his invitation to enter save by a barely perceptible inclination of the head, this struck him as unreasonably queer, and altogether out of keeping with O'Hara's known character. The latch-key was scarcely withdrawn from the opening door when Cleona appeared at the head of the stairs. She had sent the servants to bed, but herself waited up for her husband. Having planned a pleasant little supper à deux with her beloved Tony, and having donned for his benefit a most charming negligee, all soft white frills and chiffon roues with little gold bands to their edges, her glimpse of two other figures entering after him disconcerted her. Then, recognizing Cullen, she came flying down the stairs like a small white whirlwind of welcome. Cullen laughed, holding her off at arm's length. "'Rues and ribbons,' said he, "'do you not see that I am dripping from the rain?' "'We have a visitor, Cleona,' put in Rhodes in his pleasantest manner. "'Miss Reed, let me make you acquainted with my wife.' "'Oh!' murmured Cleona, peering around her brother, behind whose shielding bulk the visitor seemed to have retreated. "'I'm so glad to know you, Miss Reed. Won't you come upstairs and remove your wraps? I see that, as usual, Cullen has scorned to carry an umbrella, and, I fear, has let you suffer the consequences.' Pause and silence. "'As for that, though, I don't suppose any umbrella would survive a wind such as we have had all evening. We'll have a little supper in a few minutes, and something hot to prevent all three of you from catching your death of cold.' no answer nor acknowledgment from the mysterious one. "'Will you come with me, Miss Reed?' No response to that either. It is rather difficult to continue a flow of cordial welcome addressed to a dark, motionless, speechless figure, whose very presence carries an ominous foreboding. And while her tongue had run lightly enough, Cleona's mind was a confusion of surmise. Who on earth could this strange woman be? Reed? Reed, Why, that was the name of the man who owned the queer stock-farm! And Cullen had come openly to Green Gables, which he was not to do till the bungalow affair was finished. Was the mystery solved, then? And what had this Miss Reed to do with it? Why had Cullen brought her here, in the middle of the night and without warning? When he had phoned her at seven o'clock, there had been nothing definite to report, or so he said. Cleona ceased to speak, and one of those sudden, ghastly silences overtook all four of them, the kind that the ideal hostess is supposed never to allow. Cleona wanted to be an ideal hostess, she looked appealingly from Rhodes to Cullen. The latter realized that the time had come when he must begin to explain. With a sigh for the task ahead of him, he turned to his dusk lady. "'Take off your coat, child,' he said gently. This is my sister that I told you of. You'll find only kindness in this house." Cleona and Tony looked at her fascinated. The situation had passed beyond conventional handling. 
there was something here which only Cullen understood. They beheld a magnolia pale face, with crimson lips and starry, frightened eyes, but no words came from her. Oh! cried Cleona again involuntarily, and Rhodes echoed the exclamation in his mind. Where had Cullen discovered this girl with her unearthly beauty and equally unearthly manner? In South America? Spanish, perhaps? She looked like a Latin of some sort. Let me take your things, offered Cleona, realizing that the girl's coat was as wet as Cullen's own. Shall I remove them here? The mysterious Miss Reed asked the question of O'Hara, as though she regarded him as the arbiter of even her smallest acts. You may as well. He took off his own ulster and thoughtfully flung it over the umbrella stand in the entry. It was too wet for Cleona's hall-rack. Miss Reed wore no hat, only the hood of her coat. Unfastening the coat itself, she slipped lightly out of it, leaving it in O'Hara's hands. A startled and simultaneous gasp issued from three mouths at once, but Cullen's was the most expressive. Saints above, he was glad there had been no occasion for her to remove that coat in the train or station. Save that her feet were no longer bare, there stood his dusk lady exactly as she had stood upon the rug in Reed's entrance hall while he stooped to examine Marco's body. Her green gown, wet as ever, clung to body and limbs in the revealing lines of a thin bathing suit. Her dark hair hung in the same beautiful but informal curls. And for the first time, Cullen was painfully aware of those worn places in her gown, through which bare limbs shone whitely. Her eyes darted from one face to another of those about her, frightened, questioning. They were all, even her lord, looking at her in the strange way that no one had ever regarded her before the beginning of her long time of sadness. In the place of her nativity, no such tremendous and burdensome value was laid on mere costume as civilization places there, and little indeed had been her chance to learn. In the house at Undine she had been kept close and guarded. Something was wrong. What was it? Glancing at his sister's flushed, astounded face, O'Hara wished with all his heart that he had not so much, so very much, explaining ahead of him. To introduce a crazed and half-clad maiden, and the fact that he was in his own opinion a murderer all in the same hour, well... With another deep, weary sigh, Cullen undertook the beginning of his task. It was morning. Wind and rain had followed night into the past, and a glorious late-October sun was doing its utmost to cast a last glamour of summer over the shivering, storm-denuded trees, and to gild the sodden leaf-carpet that covered lawns and gardens. But it found more success when it peered in the window of Cleona's breakfast-room, already a sufficiently cheerful apartment. Though the hour was near noon, Cleona and Rhodes were first at table. With a very thoughtful brow she was putting slices of bread into an electric toaster, while her husband glanced mechanically through the morning paper. Casting it aside, he picked up the first edition of a so-called afternoon journal which had a paradoxical habit of appearing at eleven a.m. Therein he came on an item which changed his perfunctory interest to keen attention, and caused him, after twice reading it, to fold up the sheet and with a very pale face thrust it in his pocket. Cleona's attention had been riveted on the toast, but glancing up she saw that something was wrong. 
Are you not feeling well? she asked quickly. What's the matter, Tony? He smiled reassuringly. Nothing that coffee won't mend, dear. A slight headache. Last night's revelations were a trifle upsetting, though you weren't upset, were you? He gave her an admiring glance. Dainty and fresh in her plain housegown of blue linen, her appearance denied the sleepless night behind them. You are the only woman in the world, I believe, who could bear such a strain in the way you are doing. Frankly, I thought Cullen was crazy himself to come here with that girl and that story so soon after your illness. But I see he knows you better than I do. Not better, differently. She smiled back at him, then grew extremely grave. Tony, are we going to let him do it? What? Give himself up? Now, Cleona, I don't see what else he can do. If he had been content to leave the girl where he found her, go quietly home and keep still afterward, I doubt if he could have been connected with the mer the death of this man Marco. No one would have paid any attention to her story, even if she had the sense to tell it. But as it is, and having removed the girl from her father's house, and having been recognized by that conductor, and very likely several other people, there's no possibility of his not being connected with it. No one who knows Cullen is ever going to believe that he meant to kill the man, and the provocation was probably greater than he says. His bringing the girl here is proof enough of his good intentions, and now that the thing has gone so far, the only course for him is to plead either justifiable or involuntary manslaughter. I'm no criminal lawyer, but I think when Reed's place is investigated, and everything is cleared up and the evidence laid before an impartial jury, Cullen will get off scot-free. This beautiful, insane girl, left to the mercy of a huge ape and a probable degenerate, is bound to appeal to popular sympathy amazingly. But you and I have our work cut out in dealing with that unruly conscience of Cullen's. He says he meant to kill the man and that he wishes to take the consequences. If he says the same thing in court, and when the relative bulk of Cullen and Marco is considered, the court is likely to take him at his word. I'm not trying to frighten you, darling, but I wish you to realize that Cullen must be persuaded." Cleona looked at him quite calmly. "'He has to be persuaded to more than that. He has to be persuaded that twas not he but that big monkey Genghis Khan who killed Marco. Rhodes opened his mouth to speak, then shut it again. A woman's conscience is a tender thing, but it is not like a man's. Cleona, most innocent of women, considered perjury a small price for her brother's life and liberty. Yet, after all, it was no more perjury than what her husband had himself proposed. Rhodes possessed a deep and genuine friendship for his wife's brother but he also knew the violence and impetuosity of the man. In his heart he believed that Cullen had, as he insisted, intended for one furious moment the death of Marco. However, to his masculine mind there was a difference between the lie involved in a plea of involuntary manslaughter and the bolder lie which shifted the whole burden to another's shoulders, even though they were the shoulders of a beast. And at that moment Cullen himself appeared. If possible, he looked more depressed than on the previous night. Having shamed himself before these two, 
he must now go and shame himself before a less sympathetic audience at City Hall. And the girl he loved was as mad as a hatter. The world looked very cold and bare to Cullen O'Hara that morning, despite its sunshine. "'Where's my—Miss Reed?' he demanded as he seats himself. "'Your Miss Reed is still in bed,' retorted Cleona, with an attempt at lightness. "'I ordered her breakfast sent up.' "'Oh, all right.' Cullen attacked his breakfast, served by the dignified butler whom the Rhodes had acquired with their large menage but he found his appetite surprisingly slight. The instant they were alone, he laid down his grapefruit spoon, leaned back, and thrust his hands in his pockets. "'I'm going in town now.' "'Yes,' said Cleona quietly. "'And we are going with you.' "'You're not.' "'Before anyone goes,' Rhodes interposed with great firmness, "'we shall have to talk things over a little further.' "'There's nothing to talk about.' began Cullen in his most obstinate manner, but just then the door opened, and a timid, beautiful face appeared in the aperture. "'May I? Is it fitting that I enter?' "'Of course. Come right in, dear. Did you find it too lonely in your room?' Cleona, though she had good cause to dislike this who had brought sorrow to all of them, was incapable of treating her in other than a kindly manner. Rising, she went to the door and opened it for her fair and singular guest. The green gown was no longer in evidence, though Cullen darkly suspected it of being somewhere beneath the pale lavender peignoir which now adorned her person. Cleona knew better. That unfortunate garment had been removed by herself at three a.m., after an expenditure of diplomacy sufficient to settle the fate of nations but barely enough to persuade her guest out of it and into one of her own dainty night-robes. Under Cleona's guidance the girl entered and seated herself in the fourth chair at the small square table facing Cullen. Every motion she made, every glance of her bright, mournful eyes, expressed the timidity of a graceful wild creature, anxious to please and to believe in the sincerity of those about it, but intensely conscious of the strangeness of its surroundings. She had been given no opportunity to tell her story. Last night they had all seemed desperately concerned over the killing of one who she well knew deserved his death, so concerned that no attention could be spared her, and every effort she made to speak went wrong some way. They would look at her kindly, pityingly, and very courteously indicate that silence on her part was greatly to be preferred. The more important part of her story she had not dared even begin on, that was for her lord's ear alone. Surely he, who was so irrevocably bound to her, must understand and believe. Strange how the speaking or withholding of one word will sometimes affect whole destinies. One word, one of several names that were on her very tongue-tip, and the hindering veil of miscomprehension would have fallen but she deemed her lord as ignorant of those names as everyone else of the few she had been allowed to meet in this mad world that lay outside her native hills. She knew him and he her, and they knew each other not at all, a paradox that was to cost dear before the finish. The girl was beautiful enough in all conscience, more beautiful in the morning sunshine than he had thought her by the lights of night. Her hair was dry now, and had that dull black softness about her face 
which had caused O'Hara to name her Dusk Lady on first sight. Her smooth skin possessed a pearly, translucent whiteness, almost like alabaster with a faint pink light behind it, and her eyes were pleadingly, deceptively intelligent. Yet just now Rhodes felt that Cullen himself was a sufficient problem, and the presence of this insane protégé superfluous. "'Did you sleep well, Miss Reed?' he inquired. And she replied with an admirable simplicity. "'I slept.' "'And why not?' demanded Cullen, heavily cheerful. "'You're out of that house, and not even your father shall put you back there, little lady.' "'My father? Oh, you mean he who names himself Chester Reed. He is not my father.' No. Rhodes tried to look interested. Your name is not Reed, then? The girl drew herself up with a funny little air of hauteur, and replied surprisingly, I have no name. A pained expression flashed across O'Hara's frank face. Again he was troubled by that double emotion, shame for her pitiful speeches, and, deeper than that, a sympathy which took no count of madness. She saw the pain in his eyes, the momentary astonishment of the two other faces, and its instant veiling behind that kindly, intolerable tolerance with which well-bred sanity confronts an unsound mind. She saw, for she shrank back in her chair, and her dark eyes glimmered. "'You know, dear child,' said Cleona gently, "'because we all have names ourselves, we get in the habit of expecting other people to have them too. But, indeed, if you are wishing it to be so, you need have no name with us." Frowning, the girl glanced from one to another, as if trying to determine exactly what they, their surprise, and Cleona's too soothing assurance might really mean. Then she said in a very low tone, speaking only to herself, it seemed, "'All the customs are so strange.' "'They are that,' conceded O'Hara, with suspicious hardiness. But now, don't you be troubling your mind for the matter a minute longer. What do we care for names, the four of us here? Faith, tis the same to us if there were no names at all in the world. You need none, little lady, nor your mother, nor your father." "'Oh!' cried the girl, brightening unexpectedly. "'But of course my father had a name, and gave one to my mother likewise, but for me I am not wed. Do your unwed maidens bear names, then?' Generally, Rhodes sighed. He supposed they must humor the poor girl. If you would tell us your father's name, we could call you that, you know. That is, if you object to Miss Reed. For the first time she laughed. To call me as if I were my father! How strange are your customs! Then she looked anxiously about the table. I have heard him say that some harm had come to his name what I did not understand, so that it would bring him sorrow in this, the land of his birth. But you are my friends, you will not speak it to others. You are friends, are you not?" Cullen, though he groaned in the soul of him, nodded and smiled bravely. Rhodes laughed in a kindly, encouraging way, and Cleona, filled with pity, leaned over and kissed the poor sick girl on her beautiful forehead. We are friends," she replied softly. Then, oh, what is it, masters? The butler, who had just entered, straightened himself with a resolutely passive face. 
There are two men in the reception hall, and they asked me to tell you, Mr. Rhodes, that they are from headquarters and wish to see Mr. O'Hara at once. One of them says his name is McClellan, sir." Masters had come to Green Gables shortly after O'Hara's departure for South America, and consequently, though McClellan had previously visited the house several times, he was unknown to the butler. But Masters did know that he disapproved of a household in which red-haired giants appeared at breakfast dressed in worn, waterproofed khaki, and were then called upon by plain clothesmen. However, Masters' inward disturbance was nothing compared to the consternation roused by his announcement in the bosoms of three of his hearers. No one said anything, but their eyes, meeting across the table, spoke volumes. Then Rhodes turned to his stately servitor with what calmness he could command at the moment. "'All right, Masters. Go tell them to wait a few minutes, right there in the hall.' "'Very well, sir.' Masters' restraining presence removed, O'Hara came straight to the point. "'They traced me so soon. Indeed, I've never given that lad McClellan credit for such intelligence. Well, it's sorry I am, Tony, that they should take me from your house.' But as Cullen was rising from the table, Rhodes stopped him. "'Wait a minute. I don't think they've come for that. And I want you not to see them. I have something to tell you. Let it wait.' Cullen shook off his brother-in-law's hand and stood up. His face was darkly flushed, but his eyes shone with a grim determination. He dominated the rest of them like a giant at a pygmy's tea-party. "'Not see them? Would you have me sneak out the back door, then?' Be sure they'll see me if I'm in the house, and I'll not run away. Do you stay here?" He strode to the door, but his last command was disregarded. When he entered the reception hall, Rhodes was behind him, still protesting, while Cleona and the strange girl brought up the rear. "'Ah, Mr. O'Hara!' And McClellan's rather heavy and stolid countenance brightened as he beamed upon the advancing Irishman in a manner singularly cordial to be bestowed upon a murder suspect. "'I thought I might find you here. Quick work, eh? I suppose you've read all about it in the early afternoon editions.' "'No.' Cullen favoured his prospective captor with a morose stare. "'I had no notion they'd be having it so early.' "'Oh, they got it at headquarters. We tried to phone out to Mr. Rhodes here, but they said you didn't answer. Line out of order?' Not that I know of. Rose was nervous. He was becoming more and more positive that McClellan was innocent of any knowledge dangerous to O'Hara, but at the same time there was imminent peril of his acquiring such information within the next few moments. O'Hara must be kept quiet until there was time for further conference. More likely something wrong with the operator, he continued. But I read the paper, McClellan, and was just going to show it to the rest when you arrived. And I was just on my way," began O'Hara, but Rhodes forestalled him, speaking very loudly and quickly. "'It's the bungalow again, Cullen. The bungalow received another visitation last night.' And pulling the folded newspaper from his pocket, he thrust it into O'Hara's hands, pointing to the column in question and for the moment at least effectually distracting his attention. Cleona, key to a worse calamity, laughed and exclaimed involuntarily, is that all? Ain't it enough? McClellan looked a trifle offended. No man likes to bear news of a mountain and hear it called a molehill. 
I tell you, Mrs. Rhodes, it was enough to send me and Forrester here shooting out to Carpentier within ten minutes after we got word of it. The news was phoned in by a milkman, name of Walker, and he said when he went up there to deliver milk there wasn't, in a manner of speaking, any place to deliver it at. Said you've been living there alone, Mr. O'Hara, and the way he talked we got the idea you was murdered and laid out in the ruins. So Forrester here and me shot out there, and sure enough the place was pretty well smashed up, but not a sign of you or anybody else hurt. So on the train coming in we got talking with the conductor. We central office men pick up lots of valuable clues just talking here and there. And he says the night man told him how you and a lady went in town somewhere after eleven-thirty last night. Well, we was anxious to get in touch with you just to let you know we're on the job, so I tried to get Mr. Rhodes by phone. While I was trying, Forrester, he called up the hotels and drew them blank, so I says the best thing was to come straight out here, and we did, and here's Mr. O'Hara just like I thought." McClellan was so enamored of his own perspicacity in locating Cullen that he was quite good-natured again, but to that gentleman himself it seemed a childishly simple feat, particularly when compared to the one which he had suspected McClellan. He had meant to make the whole of last night's doings known to the complacent detective, but now he hated to do it. Somehow McClellan would arrogate to himself as much credit as if he had captured a desperate criminal in the red act of assassination. Besides, there was the bungalow. After waiting six weeks for that visit, it had come in earnest during his one night of absence. So the place was pulled down? he asked slowly, scanning the headlines. Oh, no, that was Walker's exaggeration. But it was pretty well wrecked up all right, worse than the first time. And Walker said that when he got up there, there was a horrible smell about the place. Some sort of chemical, I guess. Though that may have been some more of his imagination. It didn't look to me like there'd been any explosion. I smelled something queer myself when we went inside this from Forrester, an intelligent-looking but very young man. Don't you remember I called your attention to it? Yes, and I said you was dreamin', snapped his superior. If there was any smell it got out the windows before we reached there. Forrester shrugged and subsided. But to O'Hara this talk of a mysterious odor called up a memory. The scene was a large, bare, dusty interior, illuminated by one leaping white ray faith, and it was a most unpleasant stench the place had been filled with. The front and the back door of that storehouse had stood open, open, and it was from Reed's place that Genghis Khan had wandered all the way to Carpentier, and tried to strangle him. Had Khan wandered? "'I'll be returning to the bungalow,' he announced. "'Oh, no!' To Cleona, Carpentier and its vicinity were by this time doubly enhanced with terror. Cullen, darling, promise me you'll never go near there again. I'll have to. Sure, every stitch of clothes I have but these are out there. You'd not have me sacrifice my entire wardrobe, Cleona. You can send for them. Besides, that's not your reason," she added suspiciously. And what if it's not? It's broad daylight. For shame, little sister, tis not like yourself to be so unreasonable. I don't mean to be, Cleona considered while McClellan turned away to examine a picture and grin. 
He disliked this domineering Irishman as instinctively as O'Hara despised him, and it was highly amusing to hear him plead against petticoat rule as meekly as the least of his fellows. "'You may go,' decreed Cleona at last, "'if you'll take these gentlemen with you.' Rhodes laughed. "'I'm going myself, so you'll have quite a bodyguard, Cullen.' Somewhat to his surprise, Cleona offered no objection to that. Perhaps she felt there was safety in numbers, and anyway, on reflection, a daylight expedition to the bungalow could rouse little dread. There must be people all over the place, too, as she had been told there were while first she lay there unconscious. "'Where's the—the—Miss Reed?' It was Rhodes who asked. All the time they talked, the girl had stood close to Cleona partly in shadow, and so motionlessly silent as to be practically forgotten by all save Cullen. He never quite forgot her, but she had been pushed to the back of his mind by these more pressing matters. "'I think, perhaps she went back in the breakfast-room. Shall I look for her?' Cleona made a motion toward the door, but her brother checked her, drawing her somewhat aside from the rest. "'Tis as well,' he said in a guarded tone that McClellan does not see her just now. Who knows what the day may bring? I'll not bid her farewell, either, for the poor lass might not understand. Just tell her I've gone and will return soon, and do you try and get at the truth of this business of her father. I'd not be surprised if there was real truth behind that. Be good to her and gentle. Ah, I know there's no need to say that. Were you ever aught else in your life, little sister? But indeed, I'm that troubled. Cullen, McClellan says he has only an hour or two to spare. If we're going, we'd better start. This from Rhodes. I'll take care of her, Cullen. Cleona gave his arm a reassuring pat as he turned to obey Rhodes' summons. But she looked after him with a sadness in her eyes. Though so much younger, she understood Cullen as a mother understands a beloved son and she knew that it was not only shame or despair for his deed at Undine that had taken all the buoyancy from his step, all the happiness from his face. She had seen him look at the girl he had brought here, heard his voice when he spoke of her, and the girl was so lovely, so hopelessly, pitifully lovely. End of chapter 19